Well, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Sharper than a two-edged sword, able to pierce the, the deepest, darkest places of our mind and the deepest, darkest places of our heart. I thank you, Father, for your promise that your word will never return void. And so, Father, I know that your word is going to speak to minds and hearts and lives today. Use it however you see fit, I pray. Amen. And if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to hold it up with me right now and repeat after me what we believe about this book. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It is the supreme source of truth for what we believe and how we live. Now, open up your copy of God's Word with me to John chapter 6, John's Gospel, the sixth chapter. And let me encourage you, if you've gotten out of the habit of bringing a physical Bible with you to start back doing that, there is nothing like opening up the pages of your Bible to the book and the chapter. It will help you kind of familiarize yourself with the Bible. And there is nothing like getting into God's Word to change your life. And I grew up eating sardines and saltines. Now, my wife is over there now making a face. She says, yuck. I asked her to go to the store and get these for me, and she didn't even want to do that. She despises them that much. But this is what I grew up eating. We would eat them when we went on camping trips. I would have them at the house, and we would eat them. And what you do is you open up the can of sardines. I'm not going to do that. But you would open up the can of sardines. You would, you would put a sardine on a Ritz cracker. You would put um, another Ritz cracker, um, a saltine, excuse me, on top of that. Then you would sop the saltine in the oil and the water that the sardine came into. And let me tell you, it is an experience like no other. I mean, it's good. It's good. Now, I don't know if sardines are going to be in heaven or not, but it was good back then. Now, like I said, my wife doesn't like sardines, but she likes fish and chips. And when we went to the United Kingdom back in September, she really fell in love with fish and chips. We ate fish and chips multiple times. And big piece of fried, thick fish, French fries. You could smother it in tartar sauce. She would use ketchup. But it's good. And now many people think the story we're going to look at today is a story about fish and chips. But what I want you to know is the reality is this story today is more like a story of sardines and saltines. So if you have your Bible with you, I want us to start reading in John chapter 6, verse 1. And let's see what God has to teach us. It says, after this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with the disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. 
Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. Well, what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, Now, gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Now this is the fourth of seven miracles that Jesus performs in the book of John. If you haven't been here, let me remind you that, that the gospel of John only records seven miracles that Jesus performed. Jesus performed many more than that. But the seven miracles that Jesus performed in this gospel are strategic. John tells us as he comes to the end of the gospel that, John, that Jesus did many other miraculous works, but, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. By this time, Jesus had already turned the water into wine. He had healed an official's son. He had caused a man who had been blame, lame from birth 38 years to walk. And now this miracle, he, he takes five little barley loaves, two fish, and he, he, he feeds a multitude of people, two sardines, five saltine crackers, and he feeds about 5,000 men, not including women and children. The st historians tell us that there were probably about 25,000 people there that day. Now, what you need to understand is of all the miracles that Jesus performed, this one is the only one that is recorded in all four Gospels. Jesus healed the sick. And none of the healings are, are talked about in all four Gospels. He raised the dead. None of them are talked about in all four Gospels. He walked on the water. That's not talked about in all four Gospels. Only this miracle is talked about in all four Gospels. So evidently, there's something special about this miracle. And as we compare the Gospels, we discover that this miracle took place shortly after the death of John the Baptist. Now, this, this had to have a great impact on Jesus because John the Baptist was, was not only his cousin, John the Baptist was his friend. John the Baptist was his forerunner who announced Jesus' coming. John the Baptist was the one chosen by God to baptize Jesus. Jesus said of John the Baptist, of all the men who were born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist had died a martyr's death because of a sinful woman and a cowardly man. 
Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel tell us that the disciples had just returned from ministering in the towns and the villages. If you remember, Jesus sent his 12 disciples off, gave them his power, and they went preaching and teaching and healing. And it's at this point that they come back to Jesus, excited to tell Jesus about all that had been done. But Jesus is emotionally spent. He's worn out. He's tired, the other gospels tell us. And so he tries to retreat to get along with his disciples so that he could hear from them, so that he could rest. Now, I think this is important to us because if Jesus, the Son of God, needed to get away and rest, how much more do you and I at times need to get away and rest? If you think that you can keep going 24-7 because you love what you're doing, you need to think again. Even God, after he created the heavens and the earth, rested for a day. And we see Jesus occasionally getting along by himself to rest. But the crowds wouldn't let Jesus rest this day. When they found out where Jesus was, the Bible says that they followed him. The Bible says that Jesus, seeing them, had compassion on them, and he welcomed them. Mark's gospel tells us that that Jesus saw them as a sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things about the kingdom of God. He began to heal their sick. And most likely, even though the gospels don't tell us, he did that all day long for hours upon hours. Matthew tells us that after a full day of teaching and healing, the evening was now setting in. The sun was beginning to set. Stomachs were beginning to growl. And this is where the story gets interesting. Because you see, there was no super Walmart right down the road for them to go to to get something to eat. There wasn't a place for them to go stay at a hotel. And so the other Gospels tell us that the disciples said to Jesus, you need to dismiss them. You need to send them to some of the villages, to some of the towns that are around this area so that they can get something to eat, so that they can find a place to stay. But Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, you feed them. Now, we're going to see in a minute, Jesus knew that they couldn't feed them. He knew what he was going to do, but, but he said, you feed them. And then John's gospel tells us that he turned to Philip and said, Philip, where can we buy bread for all of these people? Now, I want you to listen. Whenever Jesus asks a question, He is never just asking a question. It is always a test that he's given us. And verse 6 makes that clear. It says he was testing Philip because he already knew what he was going to do. Now notice what Philip does. Philip takes out his calculator and he figures out that it would take about eight months wages to to feed all of the people that are gathered on that hillside, 20-something thousand people. And he turns to Jesus and he says, it can't be done. Andrew was a little bit better. Andrew came to Jesus and and he had evaluated the situation. He had went around the crowd and, and of all the crowd, there was only one person, one young boy that had any food whatsoever. And this one boy had five, two fish, five loaves of bread. You think that may be a lot, but... But the fish, commentators say, would be about the size of a sardine. 
It would be salted and dried out so that it could withstand the heat. And the barley loaves, that was the bread for the poorest of poor people. And it would be a piece of hard bread about that big. And so in reality, Andrew brings to Jesus these two sardines and these five saltines. And he says, this is all the food from all the people on this hillside. But what can you do with this little bit? But Jesus takes the food. He thanks God for it. And then he begins to ask his disciples to distribute the food. And they distribute, and they distribute, and they distribute. And then they begin to pass out the fish. They started with the bread. Then they passed out the fish, and they passed out fish, and they passed out fish, and they passed out fish until everyone ate. And it's not just that everyone ate. The Bible says until everyone was full. I mean, everyone ate until they could eat no more. And then Jesus, not wanting to waste anything, told his disciples, okay, go and pick up all the leftovers. And they picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. And the Bible says that because of this, the people wanted to make Jesus king, but Jesus retreated from them. He went to a hillside by himself. Now, what can we learn from this story? Well, I believe there are six truths that we need to learn from the loaves and the fishes. Here's truth number one. When things seem impossible, instead of looking within or looking around, look to Jesus. When Jesus told his disciples to feed the crowd, he knew they couldn't feed them. He was just putting them to a test. He was asking them, have you learned who I am? Do you really have faith in me? And the answer was obvious. No, they hadn't learned who he was. No, they didn't have faith in him because they immediately rationalized why they couldn't do what Jesus asked them to do. Now, what about you? How do you respond when you're asked to do the impossible? How, how do you respond when, when Jesus asks you to do something that you don't think that you can do? Now, Philip looked within because Jesus said, where can we get bread to feed all these people? And before Jesus, before Philip even thought about where they could buy the bread, he began to calculate how much it would cost to buy bread to feed all these people. And he calculated that it would take eight months wages. You would have to work for eight months to have enough money to buy just the bread to feed these people. And he said, I don't have that kind of money. The disciples don't have that kind of money. It's, it's impossible. Andrew went a little bit further. He thought, well, maybe it's possible if if everybody here has some food and we can get the food together and, and then if everybody puts their food together then everybody can have a little bit to eat but, but when he looked around there was only one little boy who had food nobody else brought anything and, and it was only two small fish, sardines and five small hard pieces of bread what can you do with that? what do you do when God asks you to do the impossible? God says, I want you to tithe. If you tithe of your resources, I will open up the windows of heaven and pour out my blessings upon you. How do we respond? We say, I can't afford to tithe. I, I, 
I can hardly pay the bills that I have now. How am I going to give God 10% back when, when I, I don't have 10% back to give? I can't do it. It's impossible. Where God says, I want you to go into the world and make disciples. I want you to be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ends of the earth. I want you to tell other people what I've done for you. And you say, God, I can't. I, I don't know how. I might mess up. I, I may get tongue-tied. I'm too shy. And what, what, if, what if I'm rejected by the people I share with? And, and what if I'm sharing and I get in trouble for sharing? I, I, can't, I can't do it. Or what if he says, I want you to go on a mission trip. I, I want you to go over to Central Asia somewhere and I want you to tell people that I love them. God, I can't. I'm scared to death of flying. I can't eat that food. It'll make me sick. I can't live in those kind of conditions. I need better conditions. And, and who knows, a, a python may even eat me. I just can't do it. How do you respond when God asks you to do the impossible? Well, the disciples said, we can't do it. Now, I'm convinced that Jesus' heart was shattered that day. But his heart wasn't shattered because of the lack of food. His, his heart was shattered because of their lack of faith. You see, a lack of food never stops Jesus. But a lack of faith will stop Jesus in his tracks. You, you don't believe me? Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is ministering in his hometown, and this is what it says. He said, and so he did only a few miracles there because of their unbelief, their lack of faith. You see, our lack of faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus can do will cause Jesus not to do many miracles in our midst. I want you to remember, Philip had already seen Jesus turn water into wine. He saw that with his own eyes. He had seen Jesus cause that official son to be healed. He had seen that lame man who had been lame from birth get up and walk. He had seen all of this. But when Jesus said, where can we get bread to feed all of these people? He didn't look at Jesus and say, we can't do it, but you can. No, he said, it's impossible. It would take eight months for us to work just to earn enough money to do it. It's impossible. What about your faith? in Jesus do you have faith that he can do the impossible or when he asks you to do things that don't seem possible they don't seem plausible they seem illogical do you give excuses do you say we can't do that when God asks us to do the impossible don't look within at your at your own ability don't look without at other people to see if we can do it together but look to Jesus because Jesus can do the impossible. Jesus said this in Luke 18. He said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Second truth we learn here is this. Jesus is much more interested in your availability than your capability. So Andrew finds this little young boy that had just enough food to feed himself. And, and Andrew tells this young boy, the master, Jesus, needs your food. And this young boy willingly gives his food to Jesus. I wonder what the young boy was thinking. He was probably thinking, what is Jesus going to do with my food? And I don't have that much. What is he going to do? Is he going to, is he getting hungry? Is he going to eat it as a snack? 
Is he going to use my, my food as an illustration in, in one of the stories that he's going to tell? How is he going to use my food? Now, that boy didn't have much, but it was enough because what he had may not have been valuable in his hands, but it was invaluable in Jesus' hands. Now, before we go any further, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus need that boy's food? Did he need it? No. no. Jesus could have turned the rocks into bread. They, they were beside the Sea of Galilee. Jesus could have spoke to the fish in the sea and say, jump out. And they would have jumped into the laps of the people. Jesus didn't need this little boy's food, but the disciples needed the little boy's food. And the little boy needed the little boy's food. Why? Because they needed to learn how to trust Jesus with the little they had. You see, there are some of you here today that you say, I don't have much, so I can't serve Jesus. And again, Jesus is concerned with how much you have, whether it's resources, whether it's abilities, whatever it is. Jesus is concerned with your availability. Are you available to him for him to use you for his glory and in his honor? If you're available, God will do incredible things in you and through you. The Bible is filled with stories of, of God using small things. Jesus, God used a slingshot in the hands of a teenage boy to slay a giant. God used a widow's might to teach the disciples that it's not how much you give, but it's how much you have after you give that shows the amount of sacrifice that you're really giving. Jesus used a poverty-stricken virgin girl to give the Savior to the world. And God said that if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, we can say to the mountain, be moved, and it will be cast into the sea. You think you don't have resources? You think that you don't have abilities? God uses people like that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. How many of you have seen the movie Jesus Revolution? Have you seen it yet? And if you haven't seen it, you really do need to go see it. It's based on a true story. It's really the story of Greg Laurie and how God used that revolution to transform his life but to bring a revival to the entire nation. But what's interesting to me in that true story is that God used a hippie from San Francisco to be the catalyst that brought revival to our nation. Now this hippie, Lonnie Frisbee, man, he was, he was a terrible person. He was hooked on acid, LSD. He was caught up in all kinds of sexual sin. But in San Francisco, he found Jesus. Jesus radically changed his life. He didn't have any education or anything like that. But Jesus changed him. He began to pour into God's word. And God used this flawed man with little education, Lonnie Frisbee, to spur on what many say is the greatest revival the United States has ever experienced. You say you're not educated, it doesn't matter. You say you can't speak, it doesn't matter. You say you don't have many resources, it doesn't matter. What matters is are you available to God because your little 
in the hands of God becomes much. God's much more interested in your availability than your capability. Third, if we want Jesus to do miracles in and through us, we must give him our everything. Now, when Andrew came to this young boy and said, hey, the, the master needs your food, he could have said, I'll tell you what, I, I need my food too. So I've got two fish. I'll give Jesus one. I'll keep one. I've got five little pieces of bread. I'll keep two, give Jesus three. So I'm giving him the most, but that's not what he said. He didn't say, I'm going to keep a portion for myself. No, he gave everything he had to Jesus. And Jesus did a miracle through that. I want you to hear me. It doesn't take faith to give Jesus a portion of what you have. You think it does, but it doesn't. Listen, I want you to hear me. No matter who you are, if you're a child of God, a follower of Jesus, and you're not tithing, it doesn't take faith to tithe. What it's going to take is you rearranging your spending. It's going to take you changing things around. It's going to take you reevaluating priorities. It's going to be tough. It can be difficult. But that really doesn't require a whole lot of faith. You know what requires faith? What requires faith is you to say, God, it's all yours. Everything I have is yours. Every earthly possession, my health, the people who are closest to me, everything I have is yours. Use it for your glory. And when you do that, there may be a time when Jesus says, okay, give it all. He did that to the rich young ruler, remember? But that's the only one he did that to. There are going to be other times that God's going to say, okay, I see your heart. When I need something you have, I'll tell you. Be ready. You've got to be willing to give your all. Remember what Jesus said when he was asked the greatest commandment. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You got to give it all. Fourth thing, and I got to hurry here. I'm going to go quick on this one. Jesus always leaves us with more than he takes from us. This little boy gave Jesus two sardines five saltines and he was left with 12 baskets full of food now the Bible doesn't say that but let's just suppose let's just suppose that Jesus after that 12 baskets full of food were loaded up looked at the little boy and smiled and he said thank you for giving your all take this home with you I want you to think with me for just a moment we're making this up just think for a moment. So the little boy goes home, says, Mama, you won't believe my day. And she says, tell me about it. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? And he says, you won't believe it. Jesus asked for my fish and my bread, and I gave it to him. This mama kind of looks sad. And she says, son, I'm sorry. We don't have any more food here. That was all we had. And the little boy said, don't worry. Jesus took my food and 
Somehow, some way, he fed everybody. Everybody that was there was ate until they were full. And the mom says, that's great. And then the little boy says, but no, not, that's not all. Look, and he opens the door. And there are those 12 basketfuls of food. Now, let me tell you something. The word basket there, the Greek word, is the word we get our word coffin from. So this wasn't a little basket that you have on your shelf in your kitchen for decoration. This was a huge basket that probably took two people to carry it. And so outside their little tiny home were these 12 huge baskets of bread and fish that would feed them for weeks and weeks and weeks. Jesus always leaves you with more than he takes from you. He satisfies your soul. Fifth thing, Jesus didn't come to earth to keep our stomachs from growling. He came to earth to keep our souls from perishing. Now, when this miracle was over, the crowds wanted to make Jesus king. Why? Because he fed their bellies. But that's not why Jesus came, so he left the crowds. He sent the disciples to the other side, and while they were going, it was dark, it was night, and a storm came up, and the disciples were afraid, and so Jesus began to walk on the water to them. Think that through, Jesus walking on the water. Now, the Sea of Galilee was a deep sea. We're not talking about a little pond that Jesus could wade through. This was a sea, and Jesus was walking on the water. When he got to them, the storm stopped. They were immediately, the Bible says, at the other side of the lake. The next morning, the, the crowd were looking for Jesus. They realized that he wasn't on that side. and They all got in boats and went to the other side of the lake. And when they found Jesus, I want you to listen to what Jesus said. Verses 26 and 27 of chapter 6. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you. Not because you understood the miraculous signs. So just let that sink in. When Jesus fed the 5,000, it was more than just feeding their bellies, wasn't it? He said, you didn't understand the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. I want you to listen. The reality is our stomachs are going to always growl at times on this earth. Now, I'm not talking about physical hunger. You may go through your entire life never experiencing physical hunger. What I'm talking about is this world and the needs that we have in this world. We'll always have problems. We're going to always have pain and suffering. Those things are inevitable because we live in a fallen world. And that's why our hope is not to be found in this world. I want you to understand. Your primary need, no matter how great it is, is not more money. It's not better health. It's not a new spouse. It's not a better job. It's not nicer living conditions. It's not even world peace. The greatest need of your life is a Savior who can save your soul. The greatest need of your life is someone who can keep you from hell. The greatest need of your life is someone who can transform you from the inside out. And the only one that can do that is Jesus. 
You see, we get so wrapped up in the needs of this world, and we're going to always have needs, that we fail to see that Jesus didn't come to meet our needs. Jesus came to save our soul. And trust me, hear me. Jesus does meet needs, and I'm thankful for that. But that's not why he came. And that takes me to the final truth, and it's the most important truth. If our relationship with Jesus is based on what he does rather than who he is, it will never last. If our relationship with Jesus is based on what he does rather than who he is, it will never last. This story amazes me. As we get the context of this story in each of the Gospels, right after the story, Jesus walks on water. When the disciples see Jesus walking on water, they're scared to death. They think that he is a ghost. And Jesus said, do not be afraid, I am. He was claiming to be Yahweh. He was claiming to be God. He said, do not be afraid, I am here. No, he said, do not be afraid, I am. I am. And the storm ceased. I want you to listen to what it says in Mark's gospel. They were totally amazed because they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. They were amazed when Jesus walked on water because they didn't understand the truth of Jesus turning those few loaves and those few fish into enough food to feed the masses. They missed it. They didn't understand. Later on, Jesus began to teach the people, and the people didn't like what he was saying. And John 6, verse 66 says, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Let that sink in. Jesus had fed their bellies. He had healed their sick. And then he said something they didn't like, and they turned their backs on him. And we're not talking about the crowd. We're not talking about the seekers who were coming to try to discover, figure out, is this real? No, we're talking about those who had already made a decision. I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus. And when Jesus said, you've got it wrong, it's not about the miracles I perform. It's about who I am. They turned their back on him and left. And as I read that, I began to wonder how many of us in this room today would turn our back on Jesus if he never answered another prayer, if he never did another miracle, if he never met another need. You see, I'm afraid that we want this Savior who is at our beck and call to do whatever we want him to do Take away our back pain. Get us out of this stinky job we have. Change our spouse because they're terrible. You fill in the blank. We pray these prayers, we pray these prayers, we pray these prayers, and God doesn't answer them the way we want, how we like, and we just turn our backs on it. I wonder. I really wonder. If tragedy befell many of us in this room this afternoon, tragedy, 
heartache, pain. Would we be back next week? Would we be at the altar praising his name in spite of what's happening? Or would we be outside those doors cursing him because he didn't do what we wanted him to do? I want you to hear me. If you're following Jesus because of what he does rather than who he is, it's not going to last for you. You follow him because he's your creator. Without him, there is nothing. You follow him because he is your redeemer. He's given his all so that you could be forgiven. And if the rest of your life is filled with heartache and pain, he's already done enough to reveal his goodness and his mercy and his kindness and his grace to you. And you ought to follow him the rest of your life. I know what it is to go through hardship. I know what it is to pastor people that don't like you, to be cussed out in church. It's not fun. I know what it is to lose a kid. I know what it is to lose a parent. It's not enjoyable. But I know what it is to have a relationship with God so strong that it will see me through the most difficult of times. And when you really know Him, when you really know Him, that relationship will see you through. You see, the problem is, Many of us don't know him. We know about him, and we even know bits and pieces about him. And, and when he doesn't show up the way we want, then we're disappointed with him instead of really getting to know him. And when we get to know him, we'll discover that he's the satisfier of our soul. Later on in John 6, Jesus told the crowd, I'm the bread of life, me. I'm the one that will satisfy you. It's not the food that I've given you. It's not the healing that I have brought to you. None of that. I'm the bread of life. If you want to be satisfied, you've got to find me. Not what I can do for you. Not what I can bring to the table. Not all the good things I can pour into your lap. No, you've got to know me. And when you know me, I'll satisfy your soul. You've got to come to that point where you long for him, you thirst for him, you hunger for him. As the deer pants for the water, so your soul longs for him. Have you ever done that? If you long for him so much, you want him so bad, you're just before him pouring out your heart not asking for things you want him not what he provides not what he can give but him Jesus was asked that greatest commandment he didn't say serve me with all your heart soul mind and strength he said love me with all your heart soul mind and strength that's what he wants he wants you to love him and can I tell you to know him is to love him 
Oh, goodness, I hope not. But if my health gets worse, the people I love are taken from me. I lose my ministry. Everything that this world could give me is gone. I really believe with all my heart I'm going to still have joy. I'm going to have peace. Because I have Jesus. It's not the miracles Jesus does. It's not the things that Jesus gives. It's Jesus. That's what Jesus was trying to teach us in this miracle. You come to me. I'll feed your soul. I'll give you what you need. Because I'm what you need. The disciples didn't get it. Jesus walked on water. The disciples still didn't get it. Jesus fed 4,000 a little bit later. They still didn't get it. It was not until the Holy Spirit came upon them in Acts that they finally got it. Kind of like the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ. Not I want to experience miracles, not I want to be blessed, but I want to know Christ. What about you? I want you to bow your head. Close your eyes. Now we've gone a little bit long. But there's nothing more important in your life than knowing Jesus. Do you know him? If you're here today and you don't, there's nothing more important. Oh, God, I pray that if you're here, you're a child, you're a teenager, you're a young adult, a senior adult, or anything in between, if you don't know Jesus, you may know about him, but you don't know him, he hasn't changed you from the inside out, then I, I pray today that God's spirit will touch your spirit in such a way that you'll so want him that in just a moment you'll come forward and say, what do I need to do? Pastor Matt or myself will tell you how Jesus can change everything. But if you're here and you're a child of God and there's been a point where you've longed for Jesus the way I described, you've hungered for him, you've thirsted for him as a deer pants for water, you've panted for, for the Lord. And yet, life's gotten busy and it's gotten tough and your prayer life now consists of just asking God for things rather than seeking after Him, knowing Him. Then I want to encourage you today to just come to the altar and just tell Him, God, I want to love you with all my heart, with all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. I want to know the fellowship of your suffering, the power of, of your resurrection. I want to know you Ask God to restore that intimacy with him that you once had. Father God, this is your time. I pray you'll have your way in each and every one of our lives. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You come. Stand.